You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 as we've made it to the final chapter in our study. And let's turn to God's Word now. And as you're turning there, let me start with a story. Matt Emmons of Mount Holly, New Jersey, had his eye on an Olympic medal in Athens the year 2004. He was just one shot away from claiming victory with the gold medal in the 50-meter three-position rifle event. He didn't even need a bullseye to win. He just needed to get somewhere near the center of that target, and he would have it. All he needed on that last shot was an 8.0. He shot the gun. Score, 8.1. But, however, he did not get the gold medal because, unfortunately, he made what was described as an extremely rare mistake in an elite sporting event. Emmons fired at the wrong target. Standing in lane two, he fired in lane three. What was the score for that? Zero. Instead of gold, Emmons placed eighth. The Bible gives us a very interesting image when it comes to parenting, a thought-provoking picture in Psalm 127, where the writer says this, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. As a father of three kids, I like to think of it as me having three arrows. And the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what exactly is the target when it comes to parenting? What exactly are we shooting these arrows at? And what does success look like? Because a lot of parents, they shoot at the wrong target, don't they? A lot of parents, sometimes when it comes to these arrows, they think about, well, I just want my kid to uh, be valedictorian or get into an Ivy League school. What are we aiming at when it comes to parenting? Uh, For other parents, maybe they think of academic excellence or they think about uh, athletic success. They want their child to practice hard and go to a Division I school. It's not that those are bad goals, but what is the ultimate goal? What exactly are we aiming at as parents? What would success look like if we were to hit the target? Now, it's interesting. There's just a few verses in the Bible about parenting. But if you go into a Christian bookstore, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of books about parenting. Just a few verses, but hundreds of books. There seems to be a little bit of a discrepancy there. But what would those few verses say about parenting? One of those passages is our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. So turn there with me if you would. What I want you to see here are three essential components to parenting, and I categorize them in three ways, ready, aim, and fire. Ready, aim, and fire. Now, this message is not just for those of us who are parents in the room, though. It's a message for anybody here who has some sort of influence on a child's life. So maybe you're a grandparent, or maybe you're an aunt, or maybe an uncle, or maybe you work with uh, students. Or maybe you're just a leader here uh, who has an influence somehow in a godly way on some kid's life. There's something here in this passage for everybody. So let's see what it says. Chapter 6 and verse 1. If you're ready for God's word, say amen. Amen. Paul says this. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There ends our scripture reading for today. Now, in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, this is what would be called a household code, a household code. This was like an ancient operating manual that was given to the head of the estate. It provided a code of conduct for everybody in the whole household. Uh, It began back in chapter 5. It'll continue in chapter 6 all the way through verse 9. And really, here's what we learn in the book of Ephesians about how to run our households. But before we can really understand any of these verses in chapter 6, we have to understand where we are in the book of Ephesians. Because remember, this is chapter 6 out of 6. And so as we approach this question of what is successful Christian parenting or what is the target of Christian parenting, it would be foolish of us not to understand that this text sits on top of a foundation that Paul has already carefully built. Let me give you a reminder. First of all, Christian parenting sits on top of the first foundation, which is the foundation of our own identity in Jesus Christ that he has talked about in chapters 1 through 3. What I mean is that we as parents who trust in Christ must know who we are in his son. And so that's where we find our deepest identity as parents. If we miss that, if we're not clear on that, we will also make many mistakes with regards to parenting. We might be like some people who begin to look to our children for our sense of identity instead of God. That's not good because number one, they cannot bear that weight. And number two, it will cause all kinds of problems in our parenting. If our identity in Christ is not secure, and instead, if our identity is found in our kids, then I might fail to discipline them. I might shy away from that responsibility. Why? Because I'm afraid of losing them. If I think, well, they might walk away from me, or they might get mad at me, and I don't want to take that risk. After all, my kids are all I got. Then I'm going to fail in my responsibilities as a dad. And it's not because of my own love for them. It's because of my own insecurity. Another example is kind of the opposite. If my kids are my identity, when they blow it, I will get not just upset with them, but way too upset with them. I think about it. When do we get most upset with our children? It's probably when they embarrass us in front of other people. They make us look bad, and now I'm reduced in stature around the people that I uh, care about. And again, I'm parenting through the lens of insecurity. This is why we call the series Rooted. Because the gospel affects every area of our lives, including parenting. And so we must be secure in our identity in Christ. If you're with me so far, say amen. Okay, the second foundation that he has constructed on top of that is the foundation number two, which is the local church. This is what Ephesians chapter 4 was all about. God's model of parenting takes place in the context of the local church. I mean, it takes a village, right? Pastor Bob alluded to this as our family ministry model uh, recently, which we called the orange model. If you remember, if you combine these two things, the love of the home with the light of the church, then you get an orange outcome in your child's life. In other words, when spiritual leaders like us combine with loving parents like you, we believe together we'll get a combined impact of a child who's a fully developing follower of Jesus Christ. And so it's a team effort which goes against the grain of some parents who say, listen, spiritual stuff, that's your job at the church, how to study the Bible, how to pray, that's the church's job, you guys do that. Or there's other parents who say, "Ah, we don't really need church, we'll take care of all that stuff at home, maybe we'll attend on Easter and Christmas, the church isn't really that important. Both of those two extremes, not good. 
Both of them unfortunate, both of them missing out. And so here at NBC, we believe that when you combine these two forces, the impact can be multiplied and will raise kids to be all God made them to be. So that's another essential building block in parenting, getting our kids plugged into the context of a local church. And then on top of that, he builds another foundation, if you recall, from Pastor Bob's sermon last week, and that is the foundation of a healthy marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 is all about that. Twelve verses on Christian marriage before we get one verse about parenting. That's intentional. God has designed the home to be the place where healthy kids are raised with parents who model a covenant marriage and covenant love for them every single day of the week. A wise person once told me the greatest gift I could ever give my girls is to love their mom. Because that's the ideal environment that God has designed to raise children. However, this is becoming less and less common nowadays. Take a look at this graph up on the screen just for a moment. It shows you the percentage of fatherlessness that has been steadily rising in America since 1960. It's pretty sad. And that's just the statistic measuring dads living in the home or not living in the home. That's not a statistic that measures dads who are absent emotionally from their children or have no real connection with their children. This is a national tragedy. It causes me to weep. I have such a burden for this issue because of my past experience in, in life coming from a broken home. It's difficult. It also gives me much sympathy for those of you out here who are trying to make it as single parents. I can't think of a more difficult job. And I believe if you honor God and put him first place in your home and in your family, that he will provide what's needed as a support system to get you through. And we as a church want to be there to help you and to support the single parents that are in our midst. And so don't hear any condemnation here. Instead, the point I'm trying to make, if you go back to that slide, is this. There's an architecture, there's a foundation upon which Paul has built his model of Christian parenting. And we would be wise to keep that foundation intact. Otherwise, as the psalmist says, if the foundation be shaken, how can the building stand? So let's build on top of this foundation and go back to chapter 6 now and look at some of those directions for Christian parenting that Paul has given us. Chapter 6 and verse 1 gives us two different words. Verse 1, it says, children, obey your parents. And then verse 2, it says, children, honor your father and mother. The word obey in verse 1 has to do with behavior. The word honor in verse 2 has to do with an attitude of the heart. External behavioral modification is not enough. Compliance with eye-rolling, door-slamming, bad attitudes is not what God is after. God wants the heart. God wants us to honor our parents. And that doesn't stop when we turn 18 either. He says in verse 1, for this is right. This is right. Now, why would he say that? It seems obvious, but yet there's so many people who question that and say children should just be able to follow their own heart and any discipline is just too oppressive for a child's will. When I first became a dad, I I read Benjamin Spock's famous book, Baby and, and Child Care. Most famous for his voice in the last generation of parents who want to take it easy, refrain from disciplining their children, and just instead allow them to express themselves. Discipline, Spock told us, would warp your child's ego, and millions of us followed this guru of child development. Millions. 
He remained unchallenged among child-rearing professionals until the very end of his life when he made an amazing discovery. Listen to this quote from Dr. Spock. We have reared a generation of brats. (laughs) Parents aren't firm enough with their children for fear of losing their love or incurring their resentment. This is a cruel deprivation that we professionals have imposed on mothers and fathers. Of course, we did it with the best of intentions. We didn't realize it until it was too late how our know-it-all attitude was undermining the self-assurance of parents. Oops. Sorry. Thanks for nothing, Spock. I'm going back to the Bible where it says... Children, obey your parents. This is right. It is good for children to obey their parents. In fact, it's not just good. There's a promise attached to this commandment. It says they will receive a special blessing from God, that things would go well with them, that they would live long. Now, when it says that, does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to our children? Of course, you know that's too simplistic. This is a quotation directly taken from Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, under a time when God was working with the children of Israel. And to them, what you need to know, what you need to understand, church, is the phrase, live long in the land, for the Jewish mind, was not just about material prosperity. Living long in the land was about nearness to God. It was about nearness to God. That's the blessing. That's the promise that Paul is carrying over here for the New Testament church. Children obey, children honor. So if you're under the age of 18 in the room, this is what God has for you to experience the blessing of God, to experience the nearness of God in your life. If you're still under your parents' authority, you're not just honoring your parents for your parents' sake. You're honoring them because of your commitment to the Lord. You need to pursue your own commitment to the Lord on your own. You need to pray on your own. You need to study the Bible on your own. Teenagers, you play video games on your own. You text your friends on your own. You also need to pursue your relationship with God on your own. If you're here even younger than that, fifth or sixth grade, this applies to you too. Kids, when your family asks who's going to pray for dinner tonight, Some of you try not to make eye contact during those moments. (laughs) Why? If you want to get to know God better and better, you must talk with him and pray with him. Don't wait until you are old to pursue your relationship with God. Teenagers, don't wait until you're an adult to study the Bible and, and learn to pray. Remember, King Josiah took the throne when he was eight years old. David killed Goliath when he was around 15. Daniel and his friends were teenagers when they took him off to Babylon. And our Lord Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He was quite serious. The Bible says, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. You outlive them with the quality of your life and character. The church is not just for adults. God has always involved kids to be in relationship with him and do great things for him. Now, let me say something to the parents that is maybe obvious. It's sad that in our day, the statement needs to be made, but... Parents, you are responsible to be your child's parent. Isn't that weird that that's controversial? That responsibility doesn't fall on the grandparents. 
It doesn't fall on a coach. It doesn't fall on your tutor. It doesn't fall on the nanny. No, mom, dad, you are the one God holds responsible to parent your children. If you don't take this seriously, there's going to be a big problem. And that's why Paul gives a warning here. Notice he says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Your Bible might say, do not exasperate your children. Very strong word. In fact, it is reserved in the Bible solely to describe the anger of God that he expresses toward his children in disobedience. But here Paul says, do not do that with your own children. The word means to infuriate your children. Don't make them perpetually angry. Notice that he singles out fathers here in verse 4. Does that mean us dads are more important? Does that mean us dads are the more responsible ones in the home? I don't think so. I think it's probably because we fathers are more likely to commit this sin. Oftentimes, we dads don't realize how important a role we play. A number of years ago, Peter Pendel recommended a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters about being a dad who has little girls. And I tore through that book and really enjoyed that. If you're a dad, you need to get that book. As such a, if you have a little girl at home, you need to get that book. It talks about how a dad needs to see himself through his daughter's eyes because of the role that we play. In that book, she writes this, quote, At the beginning of her life, she will feel your love. At the end of her life, you will be on her mind. What happens in between is up to you. Love her extraordinarily. This is the heart of great fathering. Fathers, there's there's an incredible opportunity for you here. Don't miss it. Or you might provoke your children. There's at least four ways that parents commonly provoke their children. Allow me to share them with you. The first way is through what I'll call overcorrection. Overcorrection. Can we say that together? Overcorrection. This means being abusive, using excessively severe discipline and arbitrariness, constant condemnation, subjecting the child to humiliation. This is the kind of home that's always characterized by strict rules, high demands of lots, with lots of consequences, but is severely lacking in any warmth, laughter, or love. One of our jobs as parents is to instruct and teach and model for our children what it means to be a loving authority. So important. Because the scriptures teach us that our kids are born with a sin nature. It's kind of, kind of funny because the word for sin in the Bible, speaking of arrows and targets, the word for sin means to miss the mark. That's the way our children come into this world. It's an archery term. They miss the mark. And that's how our children are. So the fight about whether they're going to eat their vegetables, that's not really about their diet. That's about authority. That's about them saying, I am a self-centered, autonomous being. I am capable of ruling myself. You will not rule me. That's what that's about. The fight about bedtime, that's not really because they did some sleep study. That's a conversation about authority. And so if I, as a dad, exercise my authority in an angry, impatient, abusive, or hurtful, inappropriate way, 
It actually deepens the hardness and rebelliousness that's already in my child's heart against authority. Author Paul Tripp says in his excellent work on parenting this, Christian parents, your job is to make authority for your child to be seen as a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, a gracious thing, a loving thing, a guiding thing, a protective thing, a wisdom thing, so this child would grow to see authority as a gift, to actually become thankful that authority is in their life. But if you abuse your authority early on, you will pay later. If you ask your kids to be at your beck and call, and while you sit in your easy chair, ask them to come from upstairs to downstairs and fetch you the remote, which is five feet away, they will learn that you are exercising your authority, not for their good, but for your own selfish good. And they will resent it. Learn to be a loving authority. Fathers, be careful not to wound your children. The second way that we can exasperate or provoke our kids is through the opposite problem, namely undercorrection. Undercorrection. Can we say that? Undercorrection. That means that you always give in. You spoil them. You're too afraid to give discipline or it's too difficult for you to give discipline. And so you don't. King Edward VIII, king of England, visited America one time And as he watched parents and their children during his visit here, he famously said, quote, the thing that impresses me the most about America is the way parents obey their children. (laughs) Discipline takes work. It's hard to be consistent with discipline. And so often we don't, or perhaps we're afraid. I remember eating dinner at a restaurant observing a mom and her young child at the table nearby. He was standing up on his chair and bothering the people next to them in the restaurant, and he was old enough not to do that. And at first, the mom's just instructing him, don't do that, no, just sit back in your chair. But he's not listening. So she reverts to the, hey, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three, nothing happened. Honey, please don't do that. I asked you again, just please just sit down, honey. And by the end of the conversation, it was, I promise we will get you dessert if you will just sit in your seat. I will buy you anything you want, buy all kinds of. And I'm just shaking my head thinking, what are you teaching this child? Your child doesn't need you to be their friend. They need you to be their parent. Because here's what's going to happen. They're going to go out in life and they're going to realize life, the real world doesn't work that way. And you can't just get whatever you want. And we as parents are unpreparing them for what reality will be. The third way that we can exasperate our kids is through neglect. Can we say that together? Neglect. Parents who just don't step up. Parents who just don't show up in life. They leave a vacuum. James Tony, who was once the International Federation middleweight boxing champ, was pictured on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and they were asking him why he was such a tenacious boxer. You know what he said? I fight with anger. My dad. He did my mom wrong. He made my mom work two jobs, and he left his responsibilities behind, and I can never forgive that. I hope my father reads this article, because if he ever decides to come out of the woodwork, I'll be ready for him. Everything I do in the ring is about that. I look at my opponent, and I see my dad. So I have to take him out. 
What do you hear with those words? I hear a lot of pain. Incredible pain. Without dad around, a son's life has a vacuum. A daughter's life has a vacuum. And part of their reaction to that vacuum is rage. It's the kind of rage they don't even fully understand, but they go out into life with it, and then they hurt a lot of people. Number four. The fourth way we can often exasperate our children is through hypocrisy. Can we say that together? Hypocrisy. It's the do as I say, not as I do model. I'll drop you off, you go to church, I'm going to go play golf. You know, what's interesting to me is that Julie and I observe often that our kids are a lot like us, albeit in different ways. Particularly with me, my middle child, Michaela, is very similar. I mean, I love peanut butter. And it seems like everything with peanut butter in it, she loves too. I mean, I really am very organized with my things. And Michaela is extremely organized with her things. I like playing basketball. What sport do you think she decided to pick up on when she was getting into that stuff? Basketball. I like to read and study the Bible. Michaela likes to read and study the Bible. So I'm downstairs not that long ago, and I hear this booming uh, voice coming out of her Bluetooth speaker while she's taking a shower. I said, what is that noise? She's in there, door locked, listening to the Bible on audio while she's getting ready for the day. I turned to Jewel. I said, only in a pastor's home do you hear that kind of thing going on while the child's getting ready. But that's pretty cool. I could go on and on, but one day I was thinking about that, and a sobering thought just came across my mind as I was considering her, and I thought, wow, this kid is taking her cues from me. And when I realized that, it gave me this whole new desire to grow in holiness. And I began to pray, God, I want to purify myself in body and soul, because my kids are looking to me, not just as their dad, but to find out what it means to be a grown-up what it means to be a mature adult, what it means to be a Christian. And so I said, Lord, I want to give them a good example. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be the real deal. Help me to take this seriously. Now, I don't think that experience is unique to me just because I'm a pastor. I think that experience is universal among parents and children. In fact, Archie Manning talks about this the first time he saw his son Peyton Manning play football. Peyton, of course, is a very famous and successful NFL quarterback. His dad, Archie, was also a very famous and successful NFL quarterback. As a result, Peyton had the opportunity as a young guy to study some of his dad's old tapes and learn how to play. And this is why Archie and his wife laughed out loud the first time they saw their son Peyton break huddle. Peyton Manning walks out of the huddle bow-legged. Peyton Manning is not bow-legged, but his father Archie is. And he thought because he had watched the tapes that that's the way you break huddle and go over to the center position. He just assumed that's how you do it. That's what happens to us as parents. If you are impatient in a certain way, if you scold in a certain way, 
If you talk about other people in a certain way, if you have prejudices in your heart in a certain way, if you have a spirit of negativity in a certain way, your kids will pick up on that. They'll emulate you whether you want them to or not. And so as parents, we need to realize now is the time to get serious about our spiritual growth because we're passing it on to them. Don't exasperate your children. Let's go back to that text. So that's kind of the don't. And then he turns to the do. That's the negative side. Now here's the positive side. Instead, he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two words, discipline and instruction. First, discipline, meaning correct them when they're wrong. Instruction, meaning show them what's right. Let's take them one at a time. Parents, your kids need discipline. Very unpopular today, but it's a biblical concept to hold them accountable. Many parts of our culture send a message to kids that nothing is their fault, whether rationalizing bad behavior or looking for scapegoats on which to blame misfortune or faulting others for their failures. Children are constantly told that they do not need to be responsible for their actions. It's not good. It's not biblical. There should be consequences for them not fulfilling responsibilities. The best consequences I found are removing something that's very important to them and letting them have control in terms of when they can get it back. Now, does that mean you drop the hammer every time they mess up? Of course not. You gotta pick your battles, right? But not every time do you take that as an opportunity to discipline. In fact, consider this. How often does God discipline you? Every time? Or does God pick his battles? I think it's probably the latter. God disciplines us in a loving way, in a tender way, in a gracious way, saying, I have much to share with you, but you can't bear it with it now. Just work on this one thing. Parents, go and do likewise. Treat your children as God treats you, with both nurture and admonition. And show your heart to them as God shows his heart to you. And as you do that, reflecting the face of God to your family, your home will be blessed. That's the negative, discipline. The positive is that word instruction. Instruction means to show them what is right, to model character. A number of years ago, I came across this Reader's Digest article from the perspective of a father that I think illustrates this point well. The article was entitled, Catch of a Lifetime. Let me just read it to you. I think you'll get the point. He was 11 years old and went fishing every chance he got from the dock at his father's cabin on the island in the middle of the New Hampshire lake. On the day before the bass season opened, he and his father were fishing early in the evening, catching sunfish and perch with worms. Then he tied on a small silver lure and practiced casting. The lure struck the water and caused colored into the sunset. Then, silver ripples as the moon rose over the lake. When his pole doubled over, he knew something huge was on the other end. His father watched with admiration as the boy skillfully worked the fish alongside the dock. Finally, he gingerly lifted the exhausted fish from the water. It was the largest one he had ever seen, but it was a bass. The boy and his father looked at that handsome fish playing back and forth in the moonlight. The father lit a match and looked at his watch. It was 10 p.m., two hours before bass season opened. He looked at the fish and then back at the boy and said, you got to put it back, son. 
Dad, cried the boy. There will be other fish, said the father. Not as big as that one, cried the boy. He looked around the lake. No other fishermen or boats were anywhere around in the moonlight. He looked again at his father, and even though no one had seen them, nor could anyone ever know what time he caught the fish, the boy could tell by the clarity in his father's voice that the decision was not negotiable. He slowly worked the hook out of the lip of that huge bass, lowered it back into the black water. The creature swished its powerful body and disappeared. The boy suspected he would never see such a great fish again, at least not in his arms. That was 34 years ago. Today, the boy is a successful architect in New York City. His father's cabin is still there on the island in the middle of the lake. Now he takes his own sons and daughters fishing from the same dock. But he was right. He never again caught such a magnificent fish. But he does see the same fish again and again and again. Every time when he comes up against the question of ethics. For as his father taught him, ethics are simple matters of right and wrong. It's only the practice of ethics that is difficult. Do we do what is right when no one is looking? Do we refuse to cut corners to get the design in on time? Or refuse to trade stocks based on information we know we're not supposed to have? We would if we were taught early in life to put the fish back when we were young. For we would have learned this essential truth, not about how we had the chance to beat the system and took it, but how our dad taught us the right thing. And as a result, we're forever strengthened. That's what Paul means when he says, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. It's parents' compelling character. This is hard, but our kids will live out the ethics we show them in our home. So two pillars, discipline, instruction. And I think in terms of this illustration today, maybe we could think of it as our tool for parenting, our bow. Don't worry, there's no arrow. Our bow is our tool. The arrow is our children. And the push is our discipline. And the pull is our instruction. And there's tension there, isn't there? There's tension. Because this is not always easy. But if we will consistently do the right thing with our children, we will aim them towards the trajectory of God's best for their life. And as an arrow, they will fly far because of the work that we have done as parents. Discipline and instruction. Aiming them towards the target. That's the goal. To let them fly. To let them go, isn't it? Eventually, we get to the point where our kids are ready to leave. Eventually, we get to the point where it's time for them to now be not dependent upon me anymore, but independent That is actually the purpose the whole time. They no longer need me to motivate them. Now they're self-motivated. I've let them go. I've let them fly. And so they're able to make their own decisions and take responsibility for their own mistakes. 
And there's the goal of parenting. To raise them not just as Christ-centered children, but as Christ-centered adults. So that they can now repeat the process with their kids. There's another goal in parenting as well. And this goal has to do with us as parents. You see, in his excellent book, How Children Raise Parents, yes, I did say that title correctly, uh, Dan Allender says that there is an invitation that comes to us when God blesses us with children. And the invitation is, will we shape our own character in response to his blessing us with children? Let me read you the quote from that book, if you could put it up on the screen. He writes this. Our children invite us to grow. The invitation comes by way of unvoiced questions. Will you be strong enough to face your own failure and grow as my parent? Will we accept that invitation and use parenting as an opportunity for us to grow. So I want you to remember these three phases of parenting with these three words. Ready, aim, fire. The ready phase has to do with setting that foundation that we talked about earlier. The foundation of our identity in Christ. The foundation of the local church and raising them in the context of a Christian marriage. That's the ready phase. Aim. This is where we give them direction where we teach them the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then there's the fire phase. When we remember the goal is independence. The goal is to let go. The goal is not so that they would just be Christ-centered kids, but Christ-centered adults. Ready, aim, fire. Some of us, maybe in the room today, feel like, gosh, this is tough. Maybe you're here and your child is kind of wayward at this point in your life, kind of prodigal. And I want you to understand this morning that this is not a message of condemnation for you. God, our Heavenly Father, knows what it's like to have prodigal children. So don't take it necessarily as a failure on your part as a parent. Kids have their own choices and their own will. And we have to leave them into the care of God. We have to cast that care over to Jesus Christ. That's too heavy for you to bear. And so lay it upon the Lord's feet this morning. But we do want you to know that we're here for you in any way we can be. And even if you kind of feel like you've blown it as a parent, or now you're a step-parent, and you're just not sure where to go from here, I want to say it's never too late. It's never too late to put these principles into practice. In fact, I want to tell you about a stepdad as I wrap it up. This stepdad made an investment in his son. He had just got married to a woman who had been divorced, and he recently started the relationship with her 19-year-old son. So when Dale Kinsler got married, he inherited a 19-year-old son named Chris Lott. And here's what he thought. You know, I have no idea what I'm doing. But I'd like to do something for this guy. 
He's already 19. I don't know if there's any time left. I don't really know anything about a blended family. This is going to be a totally new journey for me. And it was. But as he continued to reach out to Chris and try to bridge that gap of hurt in the past, Chris began to respond. And then later on, Dale Kinsler set up this fairly elaborate ceremony to do with him with a bunch of the guys from the church up in the Washita Mountains alongside you know, dads and sons, where they would have this campfire and they were going to you know, go on hikes. And they had one time where the kids wrote down a bunch of stuff about what it meant to be a boy, and they threw that in the fire, and they talked about what it means to be a man. And then they got together one final time and presented each young man with a plaque that had the words of 1 Corinthians 13 on it. When I was a child, I used to think as a child, act as a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, I gave up child things. And they had this ceremony right there where Dale called Chris into manhood and said, I want you to join me in my legacy now. And it was a great weekend. A number of months later, on Father's Day, Dale got this letter from Chris. I just want to read you the letter. Dear Dale, I know I wasn't born your son, but by God's amazing grace, he has made two separate families one, and I thank him every day for that. I want more than anything for you to know that I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful because you came along and loved my mom with all your heart. You changed her life, and you changed mine. I know your legacy isn't over, but you've already started a legacy in me, whether you know it or not. In your life, you've taught me what it means to be a godly man, and I know I'm not finished learning. But when I think of Dale Kinsler, I think of a man who deserves respect, a man of character, integrity, someone of, you can trust, and a man of his word. A man who has a story with me in it. In all, when I think of you, I think of a man who's committed to God. I'll never forget our camping trip up in the Washita Mountains when you affirm me as a son Someday, if and when I have a son, we're going to go on a camping trip just like that. And then you and I together can induct him into the legacy of manhood. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. And Dale, with much prayer and consideration, it is my wish to honor you on Father's Day by taking on your last name as mine and carrying on your legacy in my life. With much appreciation, your son, Chris Kinsler. What do you call that? I'll tell you what I call it. Ready? Aim. Fire. Parents, may you find the target of godly parenting. Build the foundation for your family. And aim skillfully your kids towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, let me just finish where I began earlier. Matt Emmons came back to the Olympics in 2012, this time in London. This time competing in the same exact event, the pressure was on as he took his final shot. Matt said there was a lot of buildup that day, It felt like basically the weight of the world was on my shoulders. 
His wife commented, people have been doubting him for years. It was a whole lot to overcome. This time, as Matt reached the final round, there was no mistake. He shot and got a bullseye. He stood proudly on that platform, finally receiving his Olympic medal. Parents, don't give up. Persevere in your parenting. Continue to parent with the end in mind. And may you remember the words of the psalmist, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. May you be a warrior for God. Amen.